Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, I interview Jason Cohn, director of the new documentary Love Means Zero, about the controversial tennis coach Nick Boliteri. For decades, Nick ran the Boliteri Academy that took in students at a young age and turned out champions. He's a marvelous raconteur. I did things nobody even thought of doing. I broke the rules of taking kids away from their parents and brought them to an academy, first one in the world. Now, if I didn't break those rules, I don't believe that tennis would be where it is today. Look at who came through the academy. Agassi, Selich, Curry, Krikstein, Arias, Mary Pierce. Come on, let's keep going, baby. My Serena, my Venus, Anna Kornikova, Maria Sharapova, Tommy Heist. Well, what are you talking about? I think if you take all the students that attend the academy, I think there's about 180 Grand Slam titles. Hey, babe, what do I have to tell you about? Just look at the records. I don't know half of what most coaches know in the world about pronation, turning your hips and shoulders, the dynamics of the stroke, centrifugal force. I don't know one shit. I don't know anything about that. All I know is I wanted to be a winner and with winners. Last year in Toronto, I hosted the world premiere of Love Means Zero. Now it's streaming on Showtime. Jason and I discuss that film in the second half of the podcast. In the first half, we talk about his debut film from 11 years ago, Mandabala, Send a Bullet. The film looks at escalating crime in Sao Paulo, Brazil, both on the streets and at a higher level of political corruption. Here's a Sao Paulo businessman who remembers being robbed at gunpoint in his car. You know what was the most surprising thing? He took the money, he walked about three cars backwards, he went onto the sidewalk and he stood there counting the money and that, that shocked me. I was scared, but the criminal wasn't scared and it was like ridiculous. I mean, there's no security. Nowadays, I can't even imagine riding in the city without a bulletproof car. I just, I would go nuts. Mandabala was an audacious debut, filmed in widescreen cinemascope and set to a samba soundtrack. It had the tone of a Quentin Tarantino movie with grisly details of kidnappings and a frog farm used to launder money. At the 2007 Sundance Film Festival, it won the grand jury prize. But it also divided audiences. In our interview, Jason remembers that he heard I didn't like the film from A&E executive Molly Thompson, so he cleared the air over that. He also speaks frankly about his years working in advertising. I hated the work, uh, and it's very expensive money. Sure, you get paid, but you get paid so that you're not doing other stuff. Ten years passed between Jason's debut with Mandabala and his second film, Love Means Zero. I sat down with him in March at the Miami Film Festival. I asked him about his early film job working at the office of the master documentarian Errol Morris. Over the years, I've referred to Jason as being mentored by Errol. Now Jason sets the record straight. Tom, I was a peasant in that office. Like, I, like you know, I, I was... I was a librarian of archival footage and, and not even like a cool library. Like I did data entry. You know, I, I was, uh, Errol didn't even know my name until I think I told him that I was going to leave to go make my own movie. And even that didn't really spike his curiosity until I told him I was going to shoot on film. And then everything changed. Uh-huh. And that was the moment when... Like, he became, like, a little bit more open, I think, started to know who I was. Um, but while I was in his office and, you know, while I was there, it was, like, two years. I, I it wasn't sat- a lot of mentoring. That was going- no, I sat in a corner. I, I literally, I, I didn't, 
it was a it was a very clickish environment. It was a uh, and and I was on the outside of the uh-huh. click. Um, so yeah, I, I had you know. My, so this detail that keeps cropping up in your biography is a misnomer. Well, you're the one who puts it in my biography. <laughs> I didn't make it up. <laughs> no, I mean, listen, no, because er- Errol, what, the best thing about that relationship was that after I left the office, he really opened his doors and allowed me to come back and watch cuts and all that. And it, that was the most amazing part. And so, yeah, there was, I would say, a kind of mentorship that happened after I left. Um, but I, you know, if that was a click and if that was a high school, I would have been least likely to succeed. I, uh, I really hadn't thought that making a, being a movie director was at all a feasible career path for like a, a middle class dude from Long Island. It just seemed like filmmaking was for either the, the privileged or the genius, of which I felt, you know, I belonged to neither. Mm-hmm. And... And I had a very, very dear friend, guys, uh, Chris Kasich. And Chris, when also worked for Arrow at the time, uh, more of a production guy, gave me a, a business card. We were 19 years old. It said, Chris Kasich, filmmaker. And and I was like, wow. The, the entitlement that allowed him to make this business card at 19 years old. And we became really good friends. And it was because he felt like, he was like, we are filmmakers. And I had no idea where that confidence came from. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I don't know. I still to this day. But he was the one who was like, you're going to make a movie. I, I had made a very, very naive uh, kind of documentary in college um, of archival footage from my my parents. <laughs> my parents had a... Um, had a uh, an, a video camera early on in the 80s, in like 1981, and uh, they had videotaped a pool party. And I uh, and I would watch these videos uh, and that and other videos like from for my third birthday party when um, my parents uh, brought Zippy the chimpanzee into the house, hired him for a birthday party with a magician and stuff. Um, so. I would watch these videos with my friends, and I saw, and, and in this pool party, with the, my parents threw a pool party for, for uh, friends of theirs, and I thought that I was detecting behind the scenes that my father was potentially having an affair with a neighbor. And the more and more I dug into this video, uh, the more clues I kind of, kind of were, was sussing out. It's like blow up, uh, like exactly blow like up blow up on Long Island. Ex- blow up on Long Island. I should have called it that. Instead, I called it Hot August Night, which is a reference to the Neil Diamond double LP shot in the Greek, uh, recorded in the Greek theater in 1972, because they had a conversation about that movie uh, on camera in the, this pool party. And so I, uh, I decided to make a kind of a documentary, an archival, just based on this one pool party about an affair that, that I thought my father was having. And sure enough, I, I confronted him about it, and it was true. And, and so that was the first thing I had made. And, and Chris, my friend Chris, was like, we're filmmakers. And so that was the confidence that gave me, you know, that, that allowed me to, to even understand that that was a potential. And so then I was like, my father lived in Brazil at this time. Uh, he'd been there. My family's Latin American. And my, and my father had been in Brazil uh, for probably 10, 15 years at that, mo- at that time. And... I was like, you know, I don't I have I owned a car that I could sell. I owned a saxophone that I'd got that I'd saved bar mitzvah money to buy. So I sold everything. I was like, I could I had about $10,000, but in Brazil at the time the, the uh, with the currency exchange rate, that was equivalent to about $30,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, my one of my other best friends, uh, Joey, uh, said that he could come in with some money also, so he became my partner. Uh, we were children. Mm-hmm. And we figured, you know, with like 60,000 equivalent dollars in Brazil, we could probably do something that had a little bit of production, mm. you know, or more production than we could have, you know, afforded in the United States. So I, and I had been doing research in Brazil. At, at first, I, I thought about a story about this uh, movement of landless uh, farm workers mm. that would take over farms violently sometimes um, or unused farmland and then farm it and work it. And I thought that they really needed an advertising campaign. So I thought of like this kind of dark satire film about an American, you know, coming down to try and make an advertising campaign for a revolutionary movement of landless workers in Brazil. That evolved into Mandabala. Um, 
bada bing. You know, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, you know, it was because when I started. Now, how would you describe Mandabala to someone who hasn't seen it? So I always describe it as a story about a frog farm that was at the center of a $2 billion political corruption scandal and a plastic surgeon who became famous for reconstructing the ears of people who get kidnapped and get their ears cut off um, by removing their bottom rib cartilage and carving it into a new ear and putting it there in their head. Um, so that's, to me, that that was always what the movie was about. Or in other ways, the the relationship between large-scale political corruption and violence and street violence. So that's that was in my head. You know, another one of my friends said, you know, um, it's kind of the way that the poor steal from the rich and the rich steal from the poor. Mm. And so this cycle, right? And that's that's what allowed it to be a movie. You know, before my friend said that, I'm not sure that I would have been able to kind of wrap my head around these kind of disparate ideas. What did you feel like your intent was in making the film? Um... I remember very, very specifically reading a report that a somebody from the UN, his name was Claudio Ziegler, um, he had done a special report for the UN and he had come to the conclusion that um, in a country as wealthy as Brazil, where I don't remember exactly how, number, how many people were dying of uh, famine and starvation in the nor- poor northern region of Brazil, there was something like either 20, 40,000, it was a lot of people uh, in a country as wealthy as Brazil those deaths are akin to war crimes. And so to me, it was a very, very simple idea that uh, political corruption is not a nonviolent crime or a, um, a crime without consequences, right? And so to me, it was about link saying that political corruption, especially in the developing world, um, is an act of violence. And so that was the premise of the film. That was the intention to make that movie uh, about uh, I wouldn't call it class warfare, but I would call it, I mean, it has everything to do with concentration of wealth. It has everything to do with uh, corruption and the violence that ensues from corruption. Um, and I remember one thing that Errol did say about the movie years and years ago. He's like, this isn't a movie about Brazil as much as it is about the United States in five years. Um, so th- uh, that film... What was your response to Mondavala in the, at the time? My response... Because I, I have a story about this. Um, I felt like I didn't have a good response to Mondabal. That's what I had heard. Um, I was extremely impressed by the ambition of it and by, you know, the real craft, uh, of the film. Um, but to me, the tonally, the film had a kind of ironic detachment. Um, you know, it's combining these lurid stories of crime with a kind of jaunty uh, Brazilian soundtrack. Uh, it ha- includes footage of you know, surgery and frog cannibalism and these kidnapping uh, grainy uh, videotapes that uh, you know, are really disturbing to watch. And, and you don't show that those things just once. You kind of come back to them, you know, almost like a genre movie. At the center, very much was a genre film. Yeah, at the center of the film is a corrupt politician who you who you get a kind of sh- seemingly short interview with at the end. But I felt like by the end, I still didn't really understand the you know one of the basic parts of the film, which was how this frog farm was involved in in money laundering. Uh, so I felt like the things that I wanted to know more about were uh, were unclear to me, and the things that just seemed lurid to me were more in the forefront. And and still, to, so you just re-watched I rewatched it, it uh, yesterday, and I think I had uh, more appreciation, but I also recognized the things that... Uh, <laughs> Uh, that I didn't appreciate at the beginning. Still, you still you still didn't like Mondavala. I wouldn't say that I didn't like it. Um, I would, but I, I you know I think I wanted I wanted different tonal points in it. So the movie was always divisive, and it was always made very aggressively. And I didn't partly because of who I am as a human being, probably still, and and who I was specifically at the time. But what the, I can't for the life of me remember who told me the story. But the story I had heard at some point was after one of our first screenings, it might have even been the premiere at Sundance, 
There was a. I bet it's Molly Thompson who told you this story. It was either Molly, either Molly made it, might have been AJ. I don't. Might, I, wait, wait, those, 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 those are about the only two people that I think I ever was, you know, real vocal uh, about. Um, and Molly, I bet it's Molly because I specifically remember, like at Sundance, like me having like a really negative reaction to it. That only got more negative. You know, th- the more people were enthusiastic about the film, but yeah, there, there was and, some kind of an argument. There, there was like a there was a definite moment with Molly. It, it has to be a Molly story because I remember Molly coming up and saying like, "Mandabal is the best film at Sundance," and uh, and me like you know giving a contrarian. <laughs> point well, of view. But, well, but but I feel like it, th- that wasn't a an uncommon story. I feel like the movie was either um, you know really embraced. Or there was, it hit nerves with people. But here's the thing, like when it was made, it was it was made as a real us versus them moment. It was like a litmus test um, of a certain kind of style, a certain kind of taste. And, you know, and and it, that, that was very much part of it, right? It was, um, you know, the tone, it was supposed to be funny. It was supposed, I don't really take things seriously because I don't, really buy into the idea that um, nonfiction filmmaking is a an efficient means of social change. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the things that happened at that time, especially because because of what the film was about, which is class inequality, violence, corruption, very serious subjects. But I never thought that that movie or me at all could affect change. Um, you know, I to be honest, I always had far too much respect for people who are actually on the ground doing, mm-hmm. you know, the physical hard labor of social activism. You know, I, it, you know, so, and then when you see these movies that spend hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to try and affect change, I always thought that that money would be far better spent, you know, helping the people that are actually trying to make those changes specifically. Now, this is... I'm not sure that's true, by the way, because I do think that... Uh, you know, films can shine a light on something that's, you know, more effective than, you know, giving out $100,000 worth of free meals to people. No, not $100,000 worth of free meals, but $100,000 worth of support to Doctors Without Borders, for instance. Uh, so, you know, or... I mean, you could also argue that, you know, an effective film about Doctors Without Borders that had, a, say, a million-dollar budget could raise $10 million uh, for that organization through... So, so, so not, is, not, to no, re- no, no, no. not to reduce a documentary to just no, being a PSA this, campaign, but... This is exactly the discussion that I've always wanted to have on a more data-oriented basis, right? Like, I always thought that there should be a cost-benefit analysis done of, of the effectiveness, because of what I, what I see in the real world is that documentaries can often make changes in small communities. It can often affect somebody's life or a few different people's lives. Uh, the movies that are credited for large global changes, I think, usually tap into a zeitgeist of a movement happening concurrently. Um, but I've always been curious about how money is spent most effectively for social issues. Um, and it, I'm not saying that, that I am absolutely convinced 100 percent. I just was I'm always I've always been skeptical about the efficiency of nonfiction filmmaking um, because these movies are expensive and they're extremely difficult to make. Um, and sure, awareness, there is currency to awareness. I just don't know exactly how that breaks down. Um, so and I think that there was genuinely a disappointment from a lot of people, a nonfiction fans who want to support films that you know are made by people who believe in causes i do believe in a cause i just don't believe in my effectiveness in changing anything so that detachment is very much real because it's who it's who i am and i feel like that was probably disappointing to a lot of people and and what i was hoping to tap into were the people that were really cinef like proper cinephiles because that's where i was coming from you know, my int- my interest in, in cinema wasn't always about documentary. It was just about cinema, period. You know, documentary was the first opportunity that I had because I thought it was a more effective way to spend the limited money that I, that I had. I mean, how do you spend $30,000 or actually I would say $10,000 in the United States if you want to make a fiction film? You know, you're going to make a piece of shit, yeah. you know. But in nonfiction in Brazil, that money would go much further, you know. 
to me, that movie, the flaws of that film were, were, were I think, different than what other people saw the flaws as. You know, because, you know, for me, I never go into movies for exposition. You know, I never go in for to movies to to for information. Um, you know, that's that's just not what cinema has ever. Uh, it's not the hole in my heart that cinema has ever filled. Yeah. Um, so for me, the you know the the flaws of Mandabala were the flaws of a of a of a nineteen year old who didn't know anything about story. You know, at all going in thinking that it was going to be a portrait of two men, a frog farmer and a plastic surgeon. Um, but now, you know, the energy with which that was made is is kind of the thing that I think, you know, I I find most meaning in in my in my kind of path. I don't know. So when uh, Mandabalo wins the grand jury prize at Sundance, you're how old then? I was 27, I think. Okay. You know, and uh, and you feel like documentaries are not really a viable thing. So what do you go and do? I, well, I'm, I'm absolutely broke. I'd never been more broke than after Sundance. And and also, I, I should say that, like, you know, I remember having a conversation with my partner, Joey, um, who's a co-producer in the film, um, who's my producing partner, who's, you know, my, one of my best friends. Like, right before that, you know, award ceremony, I was like, you know, because it was, we, we fought a lot because we were friends, and, you know, and it was an emotional five years. All movies are difficult to make. That movie was expensive exponentially more difficult for because of how dangerous it was at times and i remember just saying like all right it's, it's over it's we're we're you know the movie didn't sell at sundance and it only sold after we won the award i thought it was a total failure um so there was no expectation of winning i didn't believe that anybody actually liked the movie um because of how aggressive it was and and um and i so i, I wasn't believing that you know I didn't believe anything. I thought that, that film festivals were where people went to kind of celebrate not good movies at the time. That's That was genuinely what I thought at the time. And so I was like, well, they're all lying to me. The, the movie isn't good. And then it won. And it was the most unexpected thing in the entire world. Um, and then here, there I was afterwards, completely broke. I couldn't afford rent. Um, I remember moving into my ex-girlfriend's place at the time. Um, and... I didn't know what to do. So I did the only thing that I knew was that Errol also did advertising and that's how he made a living at the time. So I was like, hell, I, why not try and do advertising? Also a very naive decision uh, because, you know, Errol had already reinvented the genre multiple times by the time he became very big in advertising. So he, the level and probably that, it was a different time in the world of advertising then. then. I, I well, I, I got in right at the end of that period okay. um, of very very big paydays, but even for like really crappy spots, which is what I was mostly responsible for. I should say exclusively responsible for. <laughs> um, and so, but when I saw Errol working on on spots, he was very creative. He was working with really great you know uh, agency talent, and it was like I saw him having a lot of fun. And when I got into it, I had like the worst spots. Like, they were just crap. Give an example. Uh, what were you promoting? The The last thing that broke me, it was like the fourth round of Pillsbury Dough. Like, I just couldn't take it anymore. With the Doughboy? With the Doughboy was the last... Yes, for sure, with the Doughboy. And it was, it, was, it was awful. I hated advertising. I really, really hated advertising because people didn't see Mondabala in, in the ad world as a, a visual creative looking thing they just saw it as another documentary so i was doing like these testimonial stuff and interviews it was it was garbage work it was really really bad and you have to be a shark in advertising you in the sense you you can't stop swimming you have to keep on bidding so you bid i don't know how many and i did it for three or four years and i'm constantly bidding on stuff and maybe you get 10 20 percent and still you're making a, a lot of money but i wasn't making another movie and it was i was very depressed so i'm curious were you thinking that you'd have a lifestyle where you'd do some ads and then make another movie well that's exactly what people in advertising at the time anyway and i think still to a certain extent sell that advertising is this way to to make money that so you can support your craft or your art but and it it's total bullshit no it's total bullshit it's total bullshit and i know this because the i have a friend who's who's a really talented advertising director when i was working at interning at Errol's before I was even working there, he was interning at one of the top production companies in advertising. Advertising people know that they want lifers. They want people who are committed right. to making ads. And and so here's, like, I never cared. 
Like I, 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 I mean, I had fun because I like production uh, and I made some friends, but I hated the work. Uh, and it's very expensive money. Sure, you get paid, but you get paid so you, that you're not doing other stuff. Mm. Um, that was my experience anyway. So whenever and documentary filmmakers are often broke and trying to look for things, but it took away three or four years of of my my creative life, I believe. Um, whereas you know, I, I started a movie eight years ago as a desperate attempt to leave advertising. Um, and I just needed to get back into, into filmmaking. So, yeah, I, I highly dissuade anybody from doing advertising unless it's, that's actually what they want to do. And then it's a fulfilling career. But as like a side gig, it was the worst. And Errol, you know, got when he started doing it, he was really the top of the advertising pyramid and still to a certain extent, extent is. Um, that was not ex my experience. On the, on the bottom rungs of the advertising industry, you are, you know, constantly bidding and selling. Um, which just takes up all of your time because uh, the second you get a no. the second you get a gig, also you're not going to go out and shoot an a, a documentary, which you'll make very little money to do when you can be making you know up to hundreds of thousands of dollars to shoot an ad. We'll be back with Jason Cohn talking about his latest film, Love Means Zero, after the break. love nonfiction film, mark your calendars for Doc NYC, America's largest documentary festival happening in New York City on November 8th to 15th. If you're a working filmmaker or an aspiring one, you'll want to check out Doc NYC Pro that takes place alongside the festival, featuring eight days of panels and networking sessions. Doc NYC Pro is the place to meet documentary funders, agents, distributors, and mentors. For updates, go to docnyc.net and sign up for the newsletter. After a few years in advertising, Jason took a break and started looking for a new documentary project. He got inspiration from reading a memoir by tennis coach Nick Boletari. A key relationship for Nick was with his student, Andre Agassi. They rose to fame together, but then had a bitter falling out. That wasn't unusual. Many champions had mixed feelings about working with Nick. Jason interviews several of them, including Jim Courier, Kathleen Horvath, and Boris Becker. But the heart of the film is the interview with Nick, framed against a broken-down tennis court at his old academy grounds. Nick is now in his 80s. He's a sharp talker, but he's not strong on self-reflection. Throughout the film, we hear Jason trying to draw him out. Nick refers to himself in the third person. If you look at Nick's history, Nick does not look back. I just go forward. If you ask me right now to give you the names of my eight wives, I couldn't do it. You think I'm kidding. I wanted to come across loud and clear. I did not think about things. I did not think of the ramifications, whether negative or positive or whatever, or neutral. That's me. Can I explain that? No, I can't explain that. But my job is to make meaning. I got to make meaning out of this. Maybe for the first time in your career, you're up against somebody that is tough to make meaning out of. Okay? That happens. Now, if you're good, you find a way to make this successful. Now, it's up to you. How you take a character like me, do it a little different, and make it a success, which I'm sure you will. Because if I didn't have confidence in you, baby, I wouldn't be doing it. Jason originally brought the project to ESPN as an hour-long documentary, but they wound up passing when Andre Agassi refused to be interviewed. So Jason turned it into a feature-length CinemaScope film for Showtime. I asked him to explain the backstory between Nick and Andre. So, so in the 1990s, Andre Agassi, obviously the, the most famous, prettiest tennis player, you know, that had ever existed. He wasn't sports famous. He was rock star famous. And Nick Boletari was also, I wouldn't say equally as famous, but he was very, very famous in the time for being the coach to all of the stars. But Andre was really his guy. And I think that, you know, as much as Andre made Nick, Nick also made Andre. So they had this kind of great symbiotic relationship in the sports world. As a 
very bad tennis player my entire life, you know, but I always knew about the Nick Baltari Academy. Um, yeah, I would have loved to have gone to the Nick Baltari Academy, but it was for rich kids or talented kids. I, again, I was neither. So I wasn't going, uh, but it, but Nick was always somebody that I knew. And so when I read his autobiography. Knew of. Knew of, yes, thank you. Knew of. So, but, and then when I read his autobiography, I was like, well, this is interesting. I didn't really know what the story was. I didn't know where it was going to go because the, the autobiography was very self-promotional, which mm-hmm. is kind of Nick's shtick. Yeah. Um, but when I went to ESPN, I said, well, I'll, I, I have this, you know, I, I gave him a dozen different pitches. Nick Boletari was in there. Um, and, and So we should establish Nick Boletari then had a famous falling out with Andre Agassi that uh, left sore feelings on both sides. So, so they broke up uh, 1993, uh, 1994, um, 90, and it wasn't really clear what happened afterwards or why they broke up. I mean, this was this is ancient history. Um, and I remember talking to Andre's manager about the film, um, about him participating, and, and all he said was like, Andre still, he doesn't want to revisit. Still brings up bad feelings. There's still pain there. And to a filmmaker, that's that's all we're looking for. We're looking for conflict. We're looking for, you know, emotion. We're looking for these things. And 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 when when ESPN, uh, when I told ESPN Andre won't participate, they dropped the project. Um, and coincidentally, I had just met Vinnie Malhotra uh, from, he was just starting at Showtime. And uh, I had previously met him, been at CNN and and and, and, before, and actually had been at ESPN as well, uh-huh. um, and uh, and you know and Vinny was one of these guys who would, I th- or he would say he was always curious what happened after Mandabala. He I think he really loved Mandabala, and so he had asked me what I was up to. I was like I was working on a ES I was working on a Nick Balateri project. He was like oh that's great you should you know bring it over to Showtime. Um, and I was like, well, that's very, very sweet, but, you know, kind of working uh, on this with, with ESPN. Well, the next week, ESPN canceled the project. I called Vinny. I was like, hey, man, how serious were you about this whole, you know, Nick <laughs> Boletari thing? <laughs> yeah. And, and he was. I mean, literally one of the best relationship, working relationships I've ever had. Vinny was right on it. He was amazing. Um, within, a de- within a week, you know, he had, you know, brought the project into Showtime, uh, turned it from a 60-minute TV program into a 90-minute feature, and immediately also saw that this conflict made, elevated the, the film. It didn't detract it, uh, detract from it. So that's, that was the birth of this becoming a movie. But even still, I was unbelievably scared because as a 60-minute TV program, I figured, you know what? This isn't my second film. This is just a gig. It's uh-huh. it's something I can do to make a living. I can do it in, in a year. Um, I can, you know, it was something I, I felt like I had to do. Um, and then all of a sudden, I was now making a movie. And that brought a lot of anxiety into my life. Well, I mean, what, an element to this film is that Nick Boletari, as a tennis coach to a lot of players starting out in their teens... Um, was a father figure and uh, and not always a good father figure uh, in that, you know, if they stopped winning or had conflicts, there would be an abandonment um, of sorts. At least that's the way it was felt, certainly by those young players who had invested all this, all these feelings in Nick and then saw Nick shifting his attention to the next winner. So... I should say this. So I, I, I don't want, like, I feel like maybe there's a little bit of dishonesty because even when it was a 60-minute program, I always had an idea that there was a, this was a story about patriarchs and and really complicated father relationships. I mean, from the very, very start, um, the the movie that I was, actually it was two movies. It was, it was Akira Kurosawa was Ron, which is his interpretation of Lear, right? Um, and this movie, Ron... I always loved because my grandfather, who I, I, I really, really loved and respected, uh, when he was dying of cancer, gave three copies of Ron to my mother, aunt, and uncle. Um, <laughs> and if you know what Ron is about, it's about a patriarch who kind of breaks up his empire and the fight that ensues between you know his children. Um, and so I didn't even know that my grandfather was a cinephile. I, I discovered this you know uh, later on. 
And so Ron was always a movie that I absolutely loved. And then I revisited Ron, and I see that this movie is um, about a man who, I mean, he becomes comatose, the Lord Ichimoji. He becomes comatose because he can't um, revisit the pain he caused in other people's lives in order to build his empire. And it's kind of built around these three epic samurai battle sequences, one at each castle. Um, and through each battle sequence, you get more backstory into what made, uh, how he made his empire, um, or what he went through to, to, to build his empire, and kind of all of the flaws. Um, and he, I mean, he becomes comatose because he can't even deal with the, with, with the pain. And so from the beginning, I always thought, like, you know, this is a, a movie with three epic battle sequences. Through each battle sequence, we're going to learn more about Nick Volatari. Um but these are just kind of ideas. It's very difficult to translate, even as high. In this case, the battle sequences would be tennis matches. Three tennis matches. You know, French 1989, when Nick sits in Andre's corner. You know, when and his two sons are are battling it out. Nineteen uh, year old kids. You know, who had been raised together in his, his in his tennis academy in Florida. Uh, they they didn't like each other as children. This is their first match. Andre Agassi versus Jim, Jim Courier. Courier. And and this is their first match in a Grand Slam uh, tournament. And Nick chooses his favorite son on live international television, right? So this is, you know, battle, battle sequence one. number one. Battle sequence number two, uh, you know, Andre, will he ever actually win a Grand Slam? Uh, he was always seen as, you know, the pretty boy, but could never finish in the end. And then there was this another really, really great story that happened in 1995 between Boris Becker, um, who was uh, Nick's student after he breaks up with Andre, and Boris and Andre also... They never liked each other. Wow. So there were these kind of three great battle sequences in, in, in Nick's world that span the 10-year relationship of him and And Andre. you kind of figured that out somewhere in the middle of production or, or from the beginning you had that? Even right. before. So, you know, I started with, with Nick's book. Then, you know, I, I couldn't really figure out the story. Then I went to read uh, Andre's book, Boris's book, another uh, two books, you know, about or by Nick. Uh, so I started doing And then I started piecing together this narrative. But even so, like, so I always had this kind of high-minded idea about what it could be, but it was never doing that thing. Um, the other movie that I thought about all the time was, was Royal Tenenbaums, another movie about a patriarch coming back into, you know, his family's life with a set of expectations that everything should be normal, um, but the family couldn't get over the kind of the hurt hmm. from the past. Hmm. Um, and... Uh, you know, which I think also informs some of the photography, um, or at least that was the intention of Love Means Zero, um, and and so th these movies, you know, about patriarchs, the relationship between them, uh, broken relationships with their children, uh, that was what informed Love Means Zero from the very beginning. So even when it was a sixty-minute program for TV, I always was trying to do something else with it. But I, it just wasn't working for the longest time. Um, and it was only compounded by the fact that it had to go from a 60-minute to a 90-minute feature. Um, but somewhere in the middle of the editing process, which lasted a long time, um, we kind of found that way to, to make it. So there are some incredible interviews in this film, starting off with Nick Boletari, uh himself. Let me ask you the like the approach to interviewing Nick because it even comes out in the film that uh, Nick automatically goes into performance mode. He, he's a salesman. He's either been selling kids on their talent or selling their parents on uh, on getting their kids into his program or selling his students on TV. Uh, that's his that's his mode. It's not a self reflective mode. No, but also like I get Nick right. You know. Nick is an Italian-American from New York, um, and there was always—it was always going to be a challenge to break through because he is a self-promoting guy, but I come from the merchant class. Like, you know, my, my, my grandfather was a salesperson. Like, I, I get it, but we're also people that like to argue and argue in the best possible way. Um, and this I have to—you know, a lot of people, I think, don't really— talk about maybe because I, I love this podcast I listen to this podcast all the time and you know because because I think it's well not, not only because it's a good podcast but I, I actually I like to study the way other people work and you know one of the things that I don't 
often hear people talk about is the relationship between the director and a, and a producer, especially a creative producer, mm -hmm. and how that really works and what the real benefits of, of having a, a proper producing partner is. I mean, with Mandabala, you know, Joey Frank, who's, who's my producing partner, I mean, he was so involved uh, with every step of that film. You know, it's hard to imagine. I, I don't know. It's hard. It, it, I don't exactly know what people think about documentary producing is versus documentary um, directing or, uh -huh. or producing yeah. versus editing, uh, d directing in general. But this is one particular example where I think it, it becomes very clear how it can break down. Um, we had gone down to Florida, scheduled an interview with Nick for, for one day. And Amanda Branson-Gill, who's my producing partner um, on Love Means Zero, she was insistent on two days of interviewing. I was like, yeah, let's just do one. We'll figure it out. If, if we need a second, we can always go back. And, and she said, no. First of all, I need it for the schedule. Second of all, we need it for the film. You're going to do two days. And she was and I, she was insistent. And I was like, all right, fine. If you, you, you care about that so much, let's do it. This was not my choice. But the way that it influenced the film was... was was huge because the first day, what it allowed me to do was just listen to Nick, let him get out everything that he needed to get out. And I didn't have to engage. I didn't have to um, spend so much capital worrying about, am I going to get, you know, him, am I going to break through his character? And, and one of the other things I, I always in the back of my head is I, I know that Nick likes to argue. I like to argue. I could always just start arguing with Nick, but it's a risky move especially when you're trying to maintain a good relationship with your protagonist in your right. film. And again, the sec so this decision of two days allowed me to have this one day where it was very, very nice. I could listen to Nick, let him get out everything he needed to get out. And then the second day, I was then able to engage in argumentation. Well, so there's a moment near the beginning of the film where Nick starts telling a story in his kind of bombastic mode. And we hear you off camera saying, you know, Nick, uh, you're killing me. Like you keep going into you, your storytelling mode, mode, performance mode. mode. Um, just tell me a story. A at what point over the two days was that exchange taking place? Um, so that that might have been the first day. But, you know, the the stuff that was really more difficult was digging into the Andre stuff because um, that relationship, Nick, Nick still loves Andre. Um, truly loves Andre and, you know, would never want to say anything that would jeopardize their, even though it's a broken relationship, uh, jeopardize that relationship. So to get him to be honest about it, to get him to actually dig in was extremely difficult. Um, so uh, especially towards the end of the film, when I was becoming like, when I, I, I just... I was almost giving up. I was like, listen, if we don't start, you know, t talking about the cost of, of, of doing great things, this whole thing is going to come off as fake. And I remember feeling that so strongly because it, I, I had no interest in making the Nick Bolletary ad. Right. Um, it, it just, I, I worked in advertising before I hated it. I, I didn't want to do more advertising in, in my documentary work. So it was, it was about Andre. It was about pushing him to actually, you know, dig into that relationship. That's what, really happened the second day. The second day was far more combative. But that's a logistical decision made by a creative producer that had real consequences for the creativity of the film, the, the, the um, I would say, the, the, the quality of the film. And that's, I think, a good way to understand, I think, how a producer can have that relationship with a director where those de decisions actually matter. And Does that make sense? Yeah, I think or, so. <laughs> so uh, visually, I want to ask about the, the way you're framing Nick, because, again, you're working in a widescreen uh, format. Nick is at the center of the screen. Behind him is a kind of broken down tennis court, which uh, you know, visually sort of reflects uh, the point of Nick's life, some of this being in the past and uh, the, you know, the glory days perhaps being over. Behind Nick, there's literally a, a tennis net that's strewn on the ground. Um, I have to ask you, like, is that a very art-directed uh, sequence? Did someone have to move that tennis net to, to be there? So, so all of all of the frames that I that you know, in all of the things I ever I've ever shot, have always been meticulously kind of crafted. Um, 
And I remember getting to the court. So this was, it took place at the Colony uh, Beach and Tennis Resort uh, Hotel uh, on Longboat Key, which was his very, very first academy. And it was, had been closed and is kind of being eaten by nature. And it was immediately apparent also because of the end of Ron. The end of Ron is his, his first castle and it kind of famously is destroyed. And, and it really, really reminded me of, of Ron. Um, and, and I was like, this is beautiful and it's tragic and it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's right. Um, and I remember manipulating the, the, uh, the net. I was like, all right, we're going to make this net perfect. And, and I ch- changed the net. I tried to make it look better in the, in the screen. Cause it was, it was on, it was on the court like that. And every single time it just looked stupid and bad and it looked manipulated. I went back, I put the net exactly the way that I found it <laughs> and, and it was just better. Um, but like there, there, you'll see on the left side of the frame, there's this kind of broken down old water cooler, which was from a different part of the court, which we brought over there to balance out the frame. We moved the a flower pot from the left side of the frame to the right side of the frame. I mean, there are little things, you know, in uh, uh, Kathleen Horvath's house, we, you know, took out all of her furniture from her, uh, her, her den and recreated it. I mean, it's all her stuff. Uh, it's just in a different in, you know, arrangement. And I'm curious, did Nick have any reservation about doing an interview in this kind of broken down setting? I, I think of him as someone who's probably very self-conscious about projecting a positive image. You know, I, I think that he understood immediately that, you know, that the colony was an important part of the story. You know, his beginnings were an important part of the story. I'm not sure that he would have made the leap that, you know, seeing this kind of you know, decrepit background would have meant anything um, in term, visually, you know, in terms of the story. Um, but, you know, here's a man who's, you know, he's now 87 years old. It's definitely the twilight of his life. I mean, I think it, 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 makes, it makes sense. Um, and I was always really honest with Nick. I, I, and, you know, from the very beginning, I, I told him that I was not interested in, in making this a self-promotional portrait or a legacy piece. I was interested in, in telling a real story. So he always knew that. But what's so interesting is that it doesn't really matter in, in documentaries. Like, you can tell people what you really want to do, but often I find that they really think, well, they want to believe. Actually, I don't know how to, how to phrase this correctly. Um... I'm not sure, but they're also, you know, subjects are not often really um, familiar with the process also. So all I can say is I was always very, very honest, and I can't ever know what was, what Nick thought it was going to be. Jason gained entree to Boletari's famous students with the help of his producer, Ann White, who had been a Boletari student herself. Jason interviews stir up a time when these players were at their most vulnerable. One of them is tennis champion Kathleen Horvath, who was the youngest player to compete at the U.S. Open at age 14 and five days, a record that still stands today. Here's a clip of Horvath's interview that also includes archival of a TV magazine story on Boletari. You know, here's this coach who makes you feel like you can fly on the tennis court, who makes you feel like you can do anything. But there's also this personal connection with somebody who wants to take on a role of being a parent to you and telling you that um, they love you like a daughter. His very top students live at home with him in luxury instead of the cramped dormitory. It's another motive to win. Winning seems to be the driving force behind the whole operation. I mean, a regular coach wouldn't do that. And that's why I felt like I was his daughter. I felt like we will have this bond that will be there forever. But I think Nick's focus changed. I asked Jason if any of these players had reservations talking about Boletari. You know, it's, what's so weird is that I've never been confrontational in interviews before, but I feel like almost every single interview became in one way or another controversial. I felt very free making this movie because I, I felt like the stakes were, especially in the beginning, not as high because I was thinking still, actually the, the Boris Becker interview happened when we were still with ESPN. Um, I was like, you know what, I can just do anything. So what I, I feel like I almost pissed off Every, every single person uh, that, that I interviewed because I was just... 
We hear you on camera when you're sitting down with Kathleen Horvath. You say you look a little nervous, which doesn't seem like the kind of thing you say to put someone at ease. <laughs> well, but she, but it was true. She, she was, she was nervous. And you know, Kathleen is amazing. I, I remember, you know, she was so, so honest and so vulnerable, and she, she made herself so vulnerable on camera. Um, and I don't know. I, I have such affection for all of the characters in this movie. Um, because each interview felt almost like a therapy session. Um, I think for me, as well as them, um, and especially Kathleen, I think, you know, because Kathleen was the person who, as she says in the movie, never really felt like she had gotten real closure. She'd always expected, you know, Nick had really betrayed her, um, and she'd expected Nick to somehow acknowledge it at some point in his life, uh, or in their lives. And he and she never got that. And then uh, I recently saw Kathleen, um, and she came to Doc NYC. Am I right? She came to Doc NYC. She came to Hamptons, and she came to to uh, True False. And at True False, she watched I think twelve movies. Um, yeah, and Kathleen is is incredible. And she had said to me at a certain at one point, you know, I'd always been waiting for Nick to give me some kind of closure, but you know. After after the movie came out, he called me and he's like, "Yeah, Kathleen, you did you know you did a great job, baby. You did a great job, you know." And it was like as if he was just giving her a compliment, as if he, you know she was still his tennis you know pupil, and not really acknowledging what the content of the great job was. Not at all. And and then she said that you know, but ever since the movie came out, she's been accepting invitations to player events. She's been going to film festivals. She's been doing Q and A's. And all this stuff she had never done before, and she felt like the movie had actually given her a sense of closure. Oh. Um, that because it wasn't anything that Nick could ever give her, you know, it was something that she did on on her own. So that, that was actually one of the best things. And if if I were to play devil's advocate against you know what I was saying earlier about you know the efficiency of documentary to make actual change. Um, you know, every once in a while, I do think that you know certain things happen in production. I mean, usually. Uh, you know, from my perspective, every production is a life-altering experience. Uh, I never really thought about it from the perspective of the people who were, you know, being interviewed. Uh, but in certainly in Kathleen's, you know, circumstance, she, this was, I think, a cathartic experience for her. I think she, that's what she would say. And so that's, that's, I think, very cool. I want to thank Jason Cohn for speaking with me. His film, Love Means Zero, is now streaming on Showtime. His previous film, Mandabala, Send a Bullet, is on iTunes. This interview was recorded at the Miami Beach offices of Tour. Thanks to our team, series producer Sarah Modo, our Miami-based sound recordist Khalil Bailey, sound mixer Tom Micah, and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. I invite you to listen to our short-form podcast, Documentary of the Week from WNYC. You'll find over 160 documentary recommendations. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, Learn about live events and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.